for your grace. We acknowledge you as the one true and everlasting God, and we come before you now seeking your guidance as we delve into your word. Please bless the reading and preaching of your word. Grant me the grace I need to preach in a manner which is fulfilling of my commission. And give my brothers and sisters the grace they need to listen in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to themselves. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Matthew 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be that may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Interesting passage from the Word of God. It's talking about religious practices, giving of alms and prayer, two essential things that we need to understand. What do we do with this passage? Not very difficult to get a hold of what's going on here. What Christ is combating here is religious hypocrisy, religious inauthenticity. And what he is urging us to do is to be religiously authentic, to do things for the right reason. Now, I entitled the sermon Peer Pressure, it's certainly about that, but that's just a vagary of the modern pastorate. I have to come up with cute and interesting titles uh, every week. Uh, on the fly, this passage isn't about peer pressure per se. This passage isn't talking about what happens on school buses or in playgrounds or in the workplace necessarily. There might be ancillary doctrines we could derive from this, but what it's talking about really is our Religious practices, for instance. I once heard of a fellow who wanted to run for a county seat of sorts. It was a judgeship. And he had grown up Methodist. Perfectly fine. You can grow up Methodist. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not Methodists, but most of us know some fine Methodists. But in this particular county, and in particular this town in which he grew up in, which was really a village... The biggest church was the Baptist church. So he joined the Baptist church. Very different from the Methodist church. Now, if someone has a true religious conviction, a doctrinal conviction, that says, I really think the Baptists are more on the mark than the Methodists, and I'm going to throw in my lot with them, that's perfectly fine. They're doing it because of their conscience. But this chap, he did it just to gain votes. That's what Jesus is getting at here. 
You can't change your church affiliation just to be seen by others and to gain their approval or to gain some kind of benefit by it. Some of us may be thinking of particular national politicians who, for one reason or another, go to a particular church for 20 years and then when it realizes that their particular pastor is going to cause them problems in gaining a particular high office, they all of a sudden disown that particular pastor and go to a different church. Now, pastors make mistakes. We're humans. We're sinners. But what's interesting about pastors, just like you, we make the same mistakes over and over again. We have our own weaknesses. So, if a pastor preaches a particular sermon one time and causes problems for a particular congregant, odds are that same similar type of mistake has been made in the past. So when this particular person who's remaining unnamed goes to a different church just to go and revote, we have ourselves a big problem according to Matthew chapter 6. If you stay under someone's preaching for 20 years, you pretty much know what the fellow stands for. You just do. You just do. And if you want to stay there, fine. If you want to leave, fine. But if you leave just to gain the approval of others, and you leave just to gain a reward from others, and if you leave just to gain votes from others, now you're a religious hypocrite. Now you have a problem. That's what Jesus is condemning here. And he's telling us to take care not to do this. What he's really trying to tell us is that we must seek the approval of God and God alone. We must seek the approval of God and God alone. We cannot do our Christianity. We cannot do our religious practices just for the sake of looking good before others so that they will say nice things about us. That is off the table. None of us respect someone who is a hypocrite in any shape or form. Jesus has a real problem with religious hypocrisy, in case you haven't figured that out. Now, let's just take a step back. Jesus is not talking about people who are sinners. Is hypocrisy a sin? Absolutely. We're all sinners, but we're not all hypocrites. People say, I don't go to church. Why not? Well, pastor, the church is filled with hypocrites. Now, I usually then have to give them a little lesson in Greek and try to point out to them that they don't understand what a hypocrite really is. What they're really saying usually is, the church is filled with sick people. It's filled with people who, who aren't perfect. They sin. Have you ever noticed that they say the craziest things? They do the craziest things. They put their foot in their mouth. They don't do what they're supposed to do. And I often say, yes, the church is a hospital. When you go to a hospital, you expect to find some sick people there. Actually, everybody there is sick unless you're working there. And even the doctors get sick in a hospital. The nurses get sick, sometimes fatally so. Jesus is talking about a particular type of sin. It's very important for us to realize that when we sin, 
in any shape or form, we are not living up to our Christian testimony. We're not. By definition, that's what sin is. Missing the mark of God's standard. That does not mean that we're hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who puts on a good show in front of others and hides their sins. There's a big difference. You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Two men approach God in prayer. The one's a publican, a tax collector, one of those religious traders. The other one is a Pharisee, a high and mighty one, a pious one. And the Pharisee goes before God and gives a rather presumptuous and proud prayer. I'll give you a paraphrase here. Lord, I'm not like everybody else. And by the way, I thank you for that. I do this, and I do that. And then I do this, and then I do that. And then I do this, and then I do that, and that, and this, and this. And thank you. And by the way, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Thank you very much. Amen. The tax collector, on the other hand, can't even raise his head to God's throne. He's that humbled by his sin. He's that humbled by his lack of viable covenantal testimony. And he hangs his head, droops his shoulders, beats his chest, and goes over and over and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus then says, which of these two men do you think went home justified before God, standing in a just position before God's court. The common wisdom of the day would be the Pharisee because they're the teachers of the law and, boy, they're really strict. They, boy, they really know how to do church. And Jesus says, no, it's the fellow who could bear to lift up his eyes to God because he was so ashamed. You see, the tax collector was in touch with his sin. The Pharisee was not and looked down his religious snout at others and was a hypocrite, a play actor, a fake. And Jesus is getting at this in this text as we continue with the Sermon on the Mount. Don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. He's not telling us not to do charitable deeds. He's assuming that we are going to do charitable deeds. But he's looking for motivation here. He's looking for the proper motivation. Now, many Christians, we have to admit, don't do any charitable deeds whatsoever. Zip, not a zilch. They don't care about anybody in the church, much less those outside of the church who need their help. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Can you picture this? This had to be an historical occurrence that people were giving their alms, their offerings, and making a parade about it. Literally. 
It would be as if we had a practice when we do the tithes and offerings of you coming forward, which is an interesting practice because everybody has to come forward or they feel ashamed, right? I know churches that do that just to make sure that everybody gets up because if you don't get up, everybody's going to notice. But if we had that practice and somebody came parading down holding, you know, handfuls of $100 bills in each hand, waving them, that's what Jesus is going at. Now, if somebody were to do that, what would be our reaction? Let's be honest. Some of us would be happy that they're throwing in the hundreds. But most of us would, we'd wonder, what on earth are you doing? We would look down upon that person, and, and rightfully so. Because that's what Christ is getting at. There were people who actually had parades when they gave their alms. When they gave their offerings, they had these little trumpet ceremonies. And we have to think, how crazy are you? Do you really need the approval of others that badly? Do you really want to make that much of a show of your religious practices that you'll have a parade when you bring your offering to the table? Are you out of your mind? Yes, they are. Personally, I think a great definition, side definition of sin is acting crazy. You're not in touch with reality when you're sinning. Even for a split second. And these fellows and ladies are not in touch with reality. They are seeking the approval of men. Now we have to ask ourselves, probably don't do this. There are two applications in this particular part of the passage. One, are we doing any charitable deeds whatsoever? I don't know. Are you? Do you care at all for those who don't have what you've been given? Are you sharing, literally, of your pocketbook? No, you guys don't have a pocketbook. Checkbook. At least I hope you don't have a pocketbook. Are you sharing from your checkbook with those who are less blessed than you? Very simple. Christ is talking about money here. Christ talked a lot about money. You might notice in our liturgy, it's the giving of tithes and offerings. It doesn't say tithes and it doesn't say offerings. Do you know what the difference is between a tithe and an offering? A tithe is just a, a numerical standard. It just means a tenth. That's what it is. So if someone says to me, oh, pastor, I, I tithe 5% of my income. Negative. Now, a tithe is 10%. It's not 5%. I'm not good at math, but I know that a nickel is 5% of a dollar. A dime is 10% of a dollar. It's just math. An offering is 10.1%. Anything above 10% is an offering. Anything below 10%, if I can be very frankly, is a sin. It's better than nothing, but it's a sin. And we, listen, the vast majority of American Christians, they can't apply this law. And this is a law of Christ. It's saying, don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. They can't even get up to the bar to mess this law up because they're not doing charitable deeds. The average Christian, according to various polls, gives maybe 2% of their income. And you know what? Other polls prove 
that evangelical Christians are the most generous givers in the country. Now, if we're only giving 2 or 3% and we're the most generous, what does that say about the rest of the country? Do you realize that you have brothers and sisters throughout the world who live on $500 a year? A year. Most of us couldn't make it on 500 a week. That's not to say that we shouldn't be thankful for what God has given us and to enjoy that. It's not what this text is getting at. What it's getting at is where is your heart? I'm going to give you a very practical way to see where your heart is. Open up your checkbook and look where it is. If you have a lot of checks written to Macy's and only one to a charity or a church, you might want to just reconsider that. I'm not throwing a guilt trip on you here. I'm giving you the word of God. You see, you can't break this law if you're not doing charitable deeds. By definition, you have to be doing them first. And if we're not doing them, that's problem number one. Now, the other problem is, of course, is to do them just to be seen by men, to be seen by others. Dare I even say to do it for a tax write-off. There's no problem with giving to a charity or your local church to receive a tax write-off because, quite frankly, the government is taking too much of our money. And you want to know why? Because we don't give to the church. If everybody that was an evangelical Christian actually tithes 10% of their income, do you have any idea how much money would be available to the church or the big C? Do you have any idea how many social outreaches we could actually do? Do you have any idea how many hungry mouths we could actually feed? But we don't, and those mouths are still hungry, and somebody has to feed them. So guess what? The state jumps in where the church is supposed to be. So if you don't do one, please don't complain about the other. God will make sure that the hungry mouths get fed. And if the wrong people are doing the feeding, guess what? You will have abuse because of sin. And the cure is found right here. Jesus then moves on to prayer. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And they do the same thing. They pray on the street corners so that they can be seen by men. Long prayers. When I was a social worker, I had to be careful because even though the organization I worked for in Michigan was ostensibly a Christian organization, we housed inmates who were provided to us by the state. Strange terminology, but that's the way it worked. But we were allowed to have Bible studies and prayer meetings, particularly if I was off the clock. It was much more safe. And there was one young man there who had grown up in the church. And... He was a terrible kid, I'll be honest with you. He was 18, he was terrible. He was awful. Who knows what happened to him. But he knew how to pray. And he, he literally knew how to pray. When he prayed, you thought you were in the presence of a revivalistic preacher. And he always requested, hey, can we, can we pray now? Can we pray? And he would pray for 10, 15 minutes. Like a preacher. Beautiful prayers, eloquent, 
not written, just coming from the heart. He'd grown up in the church and he'd heard, you know, he came from a tradition where there was a lot of loud emotion. A lot of loud emotion and a lot of emotive preaching and a lot of emotive prayers. And the services were probably two and three hours. Boy, how would that fly here if the service stretched to three hours? And I started hooping and hollering in the pulpit and started breaking a sweat. Session would have a quick meeting and wonder if I had tossed my cab. But he prayed just for one reason, to show off in front of his fellows. He didn't, I can't read his heart, but judging by the actions that he committed, he really didn't care that much about anybody around him, much less the anonymous people that he would pray for. Oh Lord, pray for that person who has no food. Okay, well if you're a thief and you're praying for people who have no food, we have ourselves a little bit of a disconnect here. Pray for that person, Lord, who has no father. Well, if you have three children out of wedlock and you're praying for those who have no father, we've got ourselves a bit of a disconnect. You see what he was doing? He was just praying to show off. I would get stirred by his prayers. The other people were amazed. They thought, wow, this guy could be a preacher. And I had to tell one of them, Did you see what he did last week? In case you haven't noticed, he's on suspension for two weeks. He can't go anywhere. He can't even go to work. He can only go to counseling. You know, forget about visits to the family. He's done. He broke a bunch of rules. It's all show. But now, let me ask you about your prayer life. (laughs) How is it going? You see, there's two levels to these commands. You have to be giving to charity before you can actually break this command. And you have to actually be praying, have an active prayer life before you can even begin to hope to break it. Most of us don't pray. The next series of sermons is going to be from the Lord's Prayer. And as I said, I'm going to dig in for more than a month just on the Lord's Prayer. I know it's the summer, and I know you want to go away, but please... If you can't be here, find my sermons on the net. Because the sermons that are coming up from the Lord's Prayer, I'm going to be digging very deeply into the topic of prayer. But most of us don't pray. And most of us will never pray in public to be seen by men. So we have to think, okay, well, what are the applications we can draw from this then? Look into your heart. Is the approval of others more important to you than the approval of God? Why do you come to church? Do you come to church because it's expected of you? Do you come to church because it's a habit? It's a good habit, but is it just a habit? Is it just formal? Are you doing it just so other people will see you? If that's the case, then you really need to re-examine why you're here. You will enter those doors to worship the living God. You really do. And you need to pray for me. I don't have this particular sin problem, but there are a lot of pastors that really are in the pastorate just because they actually think it's a, a really prestigious way to earn a living. Maybe it was 300 years ago. But today, preachers are pretty, pretty looked down upon. If I don't want to talk to somebody, all I have to do is really tell them that I'm a Presbyterian preacher. And they generally speak and say, oh, fantastic. I, I hope you have a good day. And they really don't want to be around you. 
There's a famous guy named Tony Campolo, who I disagree with on many, many things, and agree with him on some things. He's a sociologist and professor, and he's a Baptist preacher. And he jokes around. He's got a pretty um, coarse way of expressing himself. But he said, you know, if I'm on a plane and I want to talk to somebody, I tell him I'm a sociologist. If I want to be left alone, I tell them I'm a Baptist preacher, and they pretty much start looking out the window and leave me alone. Why are you here? Are you here for the right reasons? Even if you're here for the wrong reason today, you can correct that right now. You can correct it right now. Do you realize what a privilege it is to be called a child of the living God? Most of us don't think one minute about our American citizenship until there's a problem with it. It's a great privilege to be called an American. We have a lot of stuff going for us, don't we? Do you want to live anywhere else? You want to go anyplace else? Hands. I'd like to see hands on this one. I'm not talking about Paris. Most of us would like to go to Paris for a month or two. I'm talking about forever and ever on men. Do you want to go to Pakistan forever? Do you want to go to Mexico? Ecuador? The Philippines? Okay. How much more then should we value being called citizens of the heavenly city? That's a great privilege. And if you're a member of the heavenly city, it's not because of any great shakes in you. That's because Christ has reclaimed you as his own. He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he has died for you. Jesus is condemning here religious hypocrisy. And what he's urging us onto is a life of authenticity. A life that really will be satisfying. A chance to actually do the right thing for the right reasons. It's better to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, I suppose. But you get a great sense of satisfaction doing the right thing at the right time, at the right moment, for the right reason. And he's talking about very practical things here. Our checkbook and our prayer life. If you'd like to grow, then look inside your checkbook. And if you'd like to grow, shut the door, shut off the TV, and get on your knees. If the arthritis is kicking in, metaphorically get on your knees. You can pray sitting down. You can pray lying down. You can pray on a horseback. You can pray under the stars. They don't have to be fancy prayers. God's not impressed by fancy language. We'll find that out in the next few weeks. God's not, he's the author of language. He's not impressed by any of our command of the Queen's English. He's looking for our heart. He's looking for our heartfelt obedience to his commands because of who he is and what he has done. That's what Jesus is getting at. He doesn't want fakes. If you want to be a fake, then just get up and leave. That's what he's basically saying. May that never be said of any of us on that great and final day when we actually do have to appear before his judgment seat and give an account for what we have done in the body. That day is one day closer, two days closer than it was at the Strawberry Festival. 
And religious hypocrites will not be welcome in the kingdom of God. It is just that simple. I read a story in my studies this past week of, maybe you know of the Navigators. It's a Bible study group, uh, very big on scripture memory, and they have a great topical memory system if you want to buy it. And they focus largely on campus ministries, young persons. Because the polls also show us that if someone doesn't get saved early in life, the odds that they're going to get saved after age 80 or 90 is next to nothing. It's just not the way God works. And this fellow organized a Bible study at Navigator's Group, and he really went whole hog with it. Put a lot of energy into it. And got it to be the biggest one in the area. And it was a great success. And everybody loved him. He was a wonderful public Christian. A shiny, happy person. One day, a guest speaker came in. A fairly well-known speaker. He was asking for testimonies from the group. And he pointed to the young man. And he said, young man, what is your hope? What causes you to get up in the morning and, and go. What drives you? What calls you? And at that point, the young man actually was convicted of the Holy Spirit and broke down. And in front of all of his fellows, he said, nothing does. I'm a fake. I don't believe any of this. At least I didn't until just about now. I've done all of this just to gain a reputation for myself. Why anybody would do that, I have no idea. There are other, better, more pleasant ways of gaining people's approval than doing a fake Bible study. Hopefully the kid got converted that day. Go home and look in the mirror. I don't think any of you are gross religious hypocrites, but we all do well to take a step back. And to ask ourselves, are we doing these things? If we're not, should we be? And if we are doing these things, are we doing them for the right reason? I urge you to seek the approval of God and not the approval of men and women. Because at the end of the day, you will not be judged by men and women, but we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we ask that you would grant us grace to do the right things for the right reason and to worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus who gave us this word. Amen.